Today, the title of what I want to teach on is Faithful in a Faithless World. Faithful in a Faithless World. And so I want to start by asking the question, what ought we do as followers of Jesus when society abandons our God? What do we do when the law of the land contradicts the law of God? When Christ, Christianity, and the church are now seen as evils, when morals are disagreed with and thrown out and sinful nature is encouraged, when kindness and gentleness are replaced with a cutthroat mentality to survive and to advance, what ought we do when our religion is trashed, when our beliefs are dismissed, When our stances are questioned, when our actions are hated, when our love is rejected, when our liberty is removed, when our freedoms are revoked, when our worship is criminalized. You may be thinking I'm talking about today. But in fact, these are the questions being asked of those exiles of Judah and Israel. And I think that we can take uh, truths from what was being told to them because our world is rapidly changing. We are on a trajectory of abandoning Christian values and replacing it with what feels good must be good. So today, as we open the text, we're going to be in the book of Jeremiah. If you want to go ahead and start finding that, if you get to Psalms in the middle, keep going. Get to Isaiah, you're getting really warm. If you get to Ezekiel, you're getting colder. All right, so go back a little bit. We're in between Isaiah and Ezekiel. Those are big books that should help you find your place. Let me set up where we have been. It's kind of been a few weeks since I've been on stage over here, so... We learned that Moses, in this one story of God, Moses has led the people out of Egypt. They have been removed from slavery now to go into freedom, to experience the promised land that God has for them. But this generation that saw God work with ten plagues and part the Red Sea loses their faith in the wilderness and they begin to doubt. So they wander around for 40 years, not not, uh, seeing the fruit that they should. Moses also is faithless as well, relying on his own strength to make water rather than what God has told him. And so he misses out. So it's Joshua who leads the people through the book of Joshua into a conquest of Canaan. Moving out the inhabitants was the goal so that the people of Israel could enjoy this good land that is flowing of milk and honey. But... Joshua and the people he is leading, though they see God work in supernatural ways, they do not stay faithful to what God has called them. They allow the people to remain because they want to use them as slaves. It's practical. It makes sense. But it's not what God has said to do. Soon, living among turns to living like. And the people begin to worship as the inhabitants do. Religion is now muddied. Instead of being Purely focused as God has set up his law in Leviticus. Now the people are adding in all sorts of new things that the people around them do. Eventually, as Sidney taught us a couple weeks ago, 
They say, we want a king. They reject God as their king, their one true good king. And they say, we want a man to lead us, not the divine, supernatural, great one. So they elect as king what seems most fitting. The tallest, the strongest, the biggest, the handsomest. And they choose him to lead over them. But God warns them, as Sidney taught us, if you elect a king, he is only going to use you and abuse you. He is only going to take from you. He is only going to uh, fulfill himself. And he does. Saul is removed and David is replacing him. David is a man after God's own heart. You would think a king that would honor God completely. And yet, even David has his shortcomings and sinfulness. And he chases after a woman that is married. He chooses to kill her husband through a battle strategy. But his sins go beyond just this one choice of lust. No, David doesn't rely on God. He needs to rely on the count of his army. And he abandons godliness. David is replaced by an heir that comes through that uh, extramarital affair. Through the line of Bathsheba is Solomon. Solomon leads, and we hear in 1 Kings chapter 3 that Solomon is humble and he needs the wisdom of God so that he can lead the people of God well. But Solomon is tempted by power and what he can do. And at the end of his life, though it started off faithful, at the end of his life, he is married to 700 women and he has 300 concubines. It's a busy dude. See, Solomon... Is tempted by this power and we were revealed Solomon's gluttony for pleasure and for power by the way that he lives. Solomon starts a tradition that all the kings pretty much take on where they begin to erect worship sites. They begin to bow down to foreign gods. They begin to leave and disregard the God that has brought them into this land. Following Solomon, there's a split in the kingdoms. This is kind of confusing. All right. So Solomon, because he has all of these women and he is so focused on things not that God has called him to be focused on, the kingdom is removed from him. And so 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel leave uh, this nation and they form their own nation and they're real creative and they name their nation Israel. Okay, so 10 of the tribes form this nation of Israel, two of the tribes, Benjamin and Judah. Where the, where the city of Jerusalem is, the city of David, they form their own nation. They are called Judah. Solomon's direct heirs rule over Judah, that smaller nation, the southern kingdom. The other ten are uh, given the kingship by a person in the court of Solomon. Unfortunately, no king is better than the last. And they all chase after these other gods. They all leave and abandon what God is calling them to do, to go and to worship what they think will satisfy. They worship what they can see. They worship what they can feel. They worship what they can uh, tangibly touch. As Cooper taught us a few weeks back, prophets were sent to warn these nations. Repent. Repent. Don't rely on anything but me. Repent of the way you've been sinning. Repent of your false worship. Repent of your turning to idols. Repent 
of your sacrificing of your kids. Repent of all of this uh, infidelity to me. And that's where we sit today. Jeremiah 25 is going to be the chapter that we are in. Jeremiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom. See, the Israel, the northern kingdom, actually falls about 200 years into their nationhood. Things get so bad. They unabashedly and unashamedly worship other gods. And Assyria, a foreign nation, comes in, destroys them, and pulls them away from their land. Judah is now being warned by Jeremiah. And what does he say? Jeremiah 25, starting in verse 3. Jeremiah says, For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you. But you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. Although who? The Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets. What did the prophet say? Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land the Lord has given you. Enjoy the land. Quit worshiping false gods. He's given this to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Verse 6. Do not go after other gods and serve and worship them or provoke me with anger with the work of your hands. And if you, if you honor me, if you follow me, I will do no harm to you. Verse 6 ends. But verse 7. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke anger. Provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own Persistently for 23 years. There's not many in this room that are older than 23. Persistently for 23 years. Your whole life. I've been saying the same thing. Stop chasing what isn't going to fulfill. Stop pursuing what will not provide pleasure. Stop spending your life on what will just leave you spent. For 23 years, persistently begging the people, turn to me. I am your good God who has loved you and cared for you. And yet, what do the people do? They ignore God. They turn their ears. They don't even incline. They don't even give him an opportunity to speak. It's like they've put their hands in their ears and they have just screamed at the top of their lungs, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. God says, you have done this. Verse 8, continue on. What does he say? Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies. Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord. And... For Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, an everlasting desolation. Jump down to verse 11 with me. This whole land will become a ruin, a waste. 
These nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. God uses pagan nations to punish his holy people. That is the story of exile. God uses pagan nations to punish his holy people because they have acted unholy. Exile is not persecution. It's punishment. This is reaping what you have sown. These are the consequences of their choices. Too many times we blame other things than look at our own choices as to having brought us here. God had warned Leviticus 26. We talked about this in the law message. God warned Deuteronomy 27 and 28. If you obey me, I will bless you beyond belief. That's your one job. It's like Adam and Eve. Don't eat of this tree. And you will experience paradise. But if you disobey me, you will experience curses that will continue to ratchet up and ratchet up and ratchet up until you repent. The culmination of the curses is I will have given you a land and I will remove you from it. I will tear you away from all that is good and great. I will rip you out of this land through war and I will turn into this, this land into a desolation, a waste. You will return to slavery even after I brought you out of it. If you disobey me. If you disregard me. And notice though, even in verse 11 and 12, there's a limit. God bounds their punishment. It's like me when our soon-to-be four-year-old keeps acting like a toddler. Say, you are going to your room for five minutes. Alexa, set timer for five minutes. And he starts screaming, that's too long, Daddy, that's too long. You have to learn your lesson. God says, I'm not only going to send a pagan nation to do this, but I can also tell you when it's going to be over. I am in such control. I am sovereign over so many things that I can choose when it happens and when it ends. And yet you still worship something else. I'm sitting here telling you what your future is going to be. And yet you are more concerned with what you can create. How often do we worship what we create rather than our creator? How often do we bow down to what we can see rather than the one who can see the future? So Assyria takes over Israel in 722 B.C. Around 597 to 587, there's, you can decide when it fall, fully falls. Um, Babylon takes over Judah. These are historical events that God has promised ahead of time. And he also tells you what's going to happen in the back end. Exile is a period of punishment because the people failed to uphold. Now, I mentioned exile has connections to our current state in world. 
where we can blame, oh my gosh, our country has abandoned truth. It has forgotten its values. It is now choosing freedom of choice rather than the value of life. And we can say, oh my gosh, how terrible is our country? But I got a question to ask you. Is there blood on your hands? Has the church failed to be the church? Have we failed as Christians to be holy and righteous? Have we failed to worship God fully and to love our neighbor truly? Have we, as the church, abandoned Christ for a religion that we can see and feel? Have we abandoned grace for a standard that we think we can uphold? Have we abandoned truth in the name of coexisting and not wanting to upset anyone? Is there blood on our hands? Have we erected new things to worship and new things to bow down to? Have we given ourselves to man-made idols? <clears throat> exile is a punishment for the choices of the people. What is it like in exile? For some, they stay in the land. But all their family is removed. They stay in the land and then other people are imported into this land. So we see that. You've heard of Samaritans, right? So the Samaritans formed because when Israel was exiled by uh, Assyria, some people stayed. And then all these other people from all regions around came and moved in. Living among turns into living like. They began to muddy the waters of their religions into a place that they could coexist and they could live together. They began to marry and they began to lower their standards. And then through that, they created this uh, mixed breed race of people, the Samaritans, who do not worship and do not live in pure religion that God established, but instead have brought together and meshed together. So some stick around. And they fall in love with other gods and other people. Others are shipped away. We see this with Daniel. If you remember the book of Daniel, there's a few things that happens. One, in the first chapter of Daniel, there is uh, demands by the king, Nebuchadnezzar, to eat this. But it went against their dietary restrictions. See, when we are in exile, when our country and our nation does not follow and believe as our God has allowed us and set us up to believe, hard choices have to be made. We only really, I think, read of about four people of all the exiles who stand up to these dietary restrictions. Everybody else just embraces what the culture tells them to do. But Daniel, and who will be called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, no, we're going to only eat this vegetarian diet. And they allow them, and they actually grow strong and mighty. But it's not always good. Sometimes when you stand up, you face difficulties. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told in uh, Daniel chapter 3 to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar because he is the one you ought to worship. And what do they say in verse 16? We don't need to answer to you. Verse 17, if it is so, even if you're going to throw us into this fiery furnace, which was the punishment for not bowing down, even if it is so, we will not care. Why? Because one, our God can save us, they say in verse 17 of chapter 3. He is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will. But if not, even if he does not deliver us, 
we will never serve your gods or worship your golden image. A choice had to be made. Daniel, the decree is no praying for 30 days. Daniel goes up to the upstairs of his house, opens the window, and gets on his knees. There are times when your country abandons your values that there are choices that have to be made, either to fidelity to God or fidelity to your culture. Daniel and these three men that are thrown into the fiery furnace choose fidelity to God because he reigns supreme even over who rules your land. The three men thrown into the fiery furnace, they watch the guard that's throwing them in there die right beside them because it's too hot. Yet they walk around in these flames. As the king looks in, he sees there seems to be another one, a fourth man that looks like the son of man in there among them. Daniel, when he's thrown into the lion's den, he comes out alive that next morning as the king races to see, is he alive? Is he alive? Daniel stays alive in that den of lions because their mouths had been shut. They had been protected. There will be days in exile. There will be days when your country does not embrace what you believe and you will have to make choices. See, up until this point, we have lived in America in this term that is called Christendom. All right. You're learning a new word today, potentially. Christendom. It is a term that means Christianity is kind of the ruling factor of culture. It is the let me see how I wrote it to make sure I'm not saying something wrong. It's the dominant figure of culture shaping and influencing the nation. And for most of the last 200 years, we've lived in a state of Christendom. One nation under God. With values that point back to Scripture in some ways. I am not going to say in any way that our country has stood for God and only God honoring things its whole life. No way, Jose. However, Christendom has ruled. That's why most politicians, they have a church. That they want to connect themselves to Christianity for votes. Because there's power and there's influence in being involved in Christianity. Now, though, we are entering in a place of post-Christendom. America is entering in, and you can see this, especially in Canada... And in urban centers of our nation, we are reaching a place of post-Christendom. We are redefining marriage. We are limiting religious freedoms. We are exalting freedom of choice over life. We are believing that we can determine what is right and what is good and what is fitting. Post-Christendom has infected and affected our lives more and more each passing year. And we need to stop fighting for, for Christendom. We need to spend our energy and effort on Christ. It's comfortable living in a state of Christendom. When see you at the pole is 50% of your whole school. When the Christian bubble is the cool place to be because they have an awesome meme chat, right? We like Christendom. Christendom is comfortable. Christendom is, is casual. It's easy. But we need to stop trying to keep it on life support. We need to be focusing on Christ. And here's why. Christendom muddies the water of Christianity. What Jesus called the narrow and difficult way. 
We've tried to make smooth pavement on it. We've tried to make it easy. We've tried to make it cool. We've tried to make it the hip, the popular, the, the, the culturally approved way. It's not. But how many Christians are fighting for Christendom and not Christianity? Or Christ, a better way of saying it. All right. What do we do in exile? We'll read what Jeremiah writes to the people and we'll connect it to our place as we end this morning. So here we go. Jeremiah 29. Your mom may have this on a poster somewhere. At least it was written on a graduation card for you. Okay? We'll get to that place. Promise. Jeremiah 29. This is a letter to the exiles. Starting in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Once again, the Lord of the angel armies. The God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent in exile. This is not outside of God's plan. This is his work. I sent you here. You are experiencing this because of me. From Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay. What are you supposed to do? It's really theological. Okay. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat the produce. Take wives for your sons and give daughters uh, in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there do not decrease seek the welfare of the city where i have sent you pray to the lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare what does he say plant your life plant gardens eat marry multiply seek the good be a good citizen be a good neighbor be praying for that people for those uh, nations do not pause your life because of what you are experiencing. No, it continues. Multiply. I really read a lot of this as very similar to the task given to Adam and Eve. Eat of the food. Multiply. Uh, be good stewards and good citizens of what I have given you. The task given Adam and Eve in the garden... The task giving exiles in Babylon and the task giving 21st century Christians in America and all over the world is the same. Live lives, such good lives, that people will see your good works, as Peter will say, and give glory to God. We, for too long, have turned Christianity into an us versus them mentality. We either want to hide we want to fortify or we want to fight every single time. None of that's listed. He's not saying go and be afraid of this big bad world. Go and fight every place that they disagree with your theology. No, he says live, work, love, eat, sleep, build, care. Be a good citizen. Seek the welfare of your roommate, your classmate, your coworker, your partners. Seek their good. Be good to them. Live rightly and righteously. Have a lifestyle where the them want to be us. Because they see that we have a God that is greater than anything you can imagine. This is how you ought to live even in exile. And then he offers hope to the dejected and the rejected. Verse 10 of chapter 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Same promise as four chapters ago. 
I will fulfill to you my promise and I will bring you back to this place. I know the plans I have for you. Now you're seeing that verse somewhere in your house. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for your welfare, not for your evil. To give you a future and a hope. I haven't forgotten you. I haven't abandoned you. I haven't forsaken you. I haven't stopped loving you. You will call upon me, verse 12, and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes, gather you from all nations and all the places that I have driven you, declares the Lord. I, who sent you out, will bring you back to the place for which I sent you into exile. There's an end, students. For Israel, exile had an end 70 years and we see 538 B.C., Cyrus the Great allows them to go back. What God promised is fulfilled. But my question for you is this. Are you maintaining hope even in the current state of our nation and world? Or have you placed your hope in your country or a candidate? Have you placed your hope in a job or a career? Have you placed your hope in a spouse or a family? Yes, evil is rising all around. Freedom is being revoked. The ways of the world are becoming more and more anti to what we believe. And you and I are forced to take a stand. And it may be difficult. You probably won't get thrown into a fiery furnace, but you may get fired. You probably are not going to get thrown into a lion's den. Like, I'm going to stand on that one. All right? You're not going to get thrown into a lion's den. Come back to me, and I will refuse. I will do an editorial transcript about I was wrong on that, if need be. You're not going to be thrown into a lion's den. But will they be in a den of robbers? A brood of vipers around you? Where you are being... Uh, Demoted because people disagree with you? Will you be passed up because you don't just ascribe to what they say? Sure, that may all happen. But the pains of this world do not compare to what God has planned. Evil may rise and darkness may seem to have a stronghold, but light will and has won. So I want to end with this. It's Easter Day. It's Resurrection Sunday. We don't hope for 70 years from now you're going to be blessed beyond your belief like they could. We don't hope that you're going to be given a ranch somewhere, you know, in the hill country like you've always dreamed of and you feel like God has promised you. No, no, no. That's not where our hope lies. Our hope lies in the fact that death has been defeated. In the fact that Satan and sin have been vanquished. And the fact that, yes, this world may be going to hell, but I am saved from it. Our hope is in the truth that Jesus rose again so that we may rise with him. See, we can sit in a hope for a candidate or for a job or for a career or whatever. But it will only disappoint. As we sit in something similar to exile, 
Will we place our hope in something greater than, than exists in this world? Exile is a terrible punishment for God's people, but it was due to their failure to remain faithful. Just as God could bound exile, he's also bound Satan. He's bound sin. He has bound evil. He has bound how long we can experience the pains of this world. And he knows that for eternity, those that have surrendered their life to him as Savior and Lord will only experience this I think I could probably say for about 70 more years for all of us. It may be a hard 70 years. It may be a painful 70 years. However, it's bound. And when death takes us from here, we know that life everlasting is where we will experience God forever. So, the real question is, will you be faithful in a faithless world? Will you be faithful in a faithless world? Let me pray.